elections since 2017 are part of critical infrastructure. That means that second only to really life and limb considerations, our mission of conducting the election, making sure it's secure, accurate, and everybody can participate, that's one of the highest priorities in these kind of situations. Now, it gets a little trickier when we're fighting for resources because the emergency management operations are still so focused on the life and limb considerations and water and food and transportation and communications. We are covered under that. But we really rely on each other probably more than some of the emergency management capabilities to make sure that our neighbors who are in peril have the resources that they need to get their job done. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. This is a podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Today's guest on the voting booth will be Mark Early, Supervisor of Elections in Leon County, Florida. That's in Tallahassee, Florida. Now, he has served the voters of Leon County and other voters for 30 years. He was elected to Leon County in 2016, and he is the immediate past president of the Florida Supervisors of Elections, of which there are 67 counties in the state of Florida. He serves on the local leadership council for the Election Assistance Commission, which is a advisory board of local election officials across the country. And he has a leading role in post-election audits and working with the state legislature. Welcome, Supervisor Early. Thank you, Don. It's good to be here, John. So today we're looking to talk about emergencies and elections. Not every election goes as planned, and sometimes there are very big disruptions. And you are in the state of Florida, where it is, is a more regular occurrence to have hurricanes and other things that might might disrupt an election. So we want your thoughts on this, and, and maybe we could just start with a little of the background, what the Florida law is, who some of the players are. My looking at these state codes tells me that Florida actually has thought about this a little bit more than other places. They're used to this. Many states actually don't have a lot in their code about what you should do if there's an emergency. So Tell us a little bit about the background, the code, who the players are. What, what would you say about Florida's place in this? Florida, in general, each individual supervisor of elections is a constitutional officer. So we don't have direct oversight, frankly, from anyone. We kind of our own bosses. But we do work under the guidance and auspices of the Secretary of State's office, who works for the governor under the executive branch. So while we are all independent, we have a very strong association As you say, the topic today is working under emergency situations. We've had more than our fair share in Florida, and we will get more and more as the storms build in ferocity. So we're always ready with contingency plans. So in statute, we've got a very well-defined, I think a very good set of statutes governing our elections. They're fairly rigid, but when time comes for for you you need that flexibility because you don't know what's going to happen with the emergency. We work very closely with the Secretary of State's office, the supervisors of elections. We've got a lot of experience with the different types of emergencies. And so we have rough, basically a set of plans that we can put into place, depending on what the type of problem or emergency we're facing, where you either make provisions in this law that you don't have to have every single polling place open. You can consolidate some polling places in some regions of your county, frequently like in an early voting site or something like that. To be flexible, still serve your voters, maybe expand vote by mail. There's different provisions on how you request the vote by mail ballots. Some of those provisions may be loosened up. But really, all of that is handled under an executive order from the governor with input from the supervisors channeled through the Secretary of State's office. 
So Mark, welcome to DC. You're here for a meeting of election officials in, in the nation's capital to talk about dealing with natural disasters. And you've been through this. What is your input to those other election officials who may not have gone through a major hurricane on how to handle the reality of, you know, a large storm that comes through and literally half your polling places are, are, are not operational? Yeah, that really, it happens. And it's it's something a new supervisor is doesn't even have on the radar screen. So the first part is you have to prepare. One of the great things, I think maybe the fact that we deal with emergencies frequently has enabled us to build a very strong association. So we have a very collegial group. We have a lot of training. We work very closely together, great communications channels. So anytime well, when hurricane season rolls around, we are all talking to each other. We're watching, watching every storm, communicating with the Secretary of State's office, and we're always preparing. We have equipment sharing capabilities where, and generators and portable air conditioning units, all kinds of things that many counties who have maybe more, a larger budget can provide throughout the state. When Hurricane Michael came through in 2018, Leon County was just on the eastern side of that storm, and it was a ferocious storm and really impacted my neighbors to the west horribly. Destroyed the houses of the workers, destroyed the offices, no power for many weeks. All the roads are blocked. But, you know, we saw it coming well in advance, although it ramped up very quickly. But we were able to take a truck and a trailer full of generators and extra voting machines and AC units to about five different counties over there. And all of the other details like power cords. You think you need generators, but really the th hard thing to find in an emergency is the right kind of power cords to distribute that power throughout your building. So just getting those things prepared in advance, poised and ready to deliver to your neighboring supervisors is, is really one of the big ways we support each other and one of the ways that we prepare in advance for that. Just I, to follow up, yeah. election administrators prepare for this, but one of the things, what is your message to voters who suddenly have been through a hurricane and they have to, you know, their primary way of voting is now gone. What's your message to them on, on how to exercise their vote if they're in the middle of a natural disaster? Yeah. So one thing, I, the main thing I would say would be to watch the news because your supervisor of election and the state at the state level, the secretary of states and even the governor's office is going to be very focused on the election. Elections since 2017 are part of critical infrastructure. That means that second only to really life and limb considerations, our mission of conducting the election, making sure it's secure, accurate, and everybody can participate, that's one of the highest priorities in these kind of situations. Now, it gets a little trickier when we're fighting for resources because the emergency management operations, they're still so focused on the life and limb considerations and water and food and transportation and communications. We are covered under that. But we really rely on each other probably more than some of the emergency management capabilities to make sure that our neighbors who are in peril have the resources that they need to get their job done. But from the voters' perspective, pay close attention to the news. There will be opportunities out there. And sometimes that's changing from day to day as the plan comes together and as the weather system or their emergency evolves. But there's some basic tenets that we try and provide. Sometimes we'll loosen up the ability for vote by mail. There's first responders moving into the area and leaving their home areas, and maybe they hadn't planned on voting by mail. So we make provisions to handle that. Places that wouldn't necessarily be a polling place. During Hurricane Charlie, we set up tents and had portable generators, and we were running polling sites just out in big parking lot. And so there's lots of ways to get the vote process done. 
and we've seen extensions of early voting times, extensions of hours, early voting extended even into Election Day, essentially. So in Florida, you're not allowed to have vote centers on Election Day. But in emergency situations, we can certainly ramp that up with an executive order. And that's that's happened quite a few times. So pay attention to the news. If you're a voter, the messaging will be getting out to you and take advantage of it. So one thing you've alluded to is that when an emergency happens, it's, it's good to have things to find in law. That's great. But but we can't count for every circumstance. Yep. And there are going to be a number of institutions and players trying to figure out what to do. And I think in Florida, it actually went fairly smoothly. But I, I think of COVID. I'd like to hear your experience yep. with COVID. But in other states, some states where the political parties controlled one institution or the other, and there were real debates. Should should we bring this back to the legislature? Should courts step in? Does a governor have powers? Does the health director have powers? And sometimes really real conflict keeping from voting. So tell us a little bit about just your experience, either in 2018 or, or earlier, or things that you've seen around the state and, and those sort of things and the way, the way that you can make them work well or, or what? What else you'd say about those kind of conflicts? Yeah, again, I think having a strong association where everybody is working together and having good relationships with Secretary of State's office, I think really has been a great benefit to us. And I think a lot of that hinges on our association itself. When I talk to supervisors of elections or election officials throughout the nation, and we've been asked to come and speak to this a lot, is they are very envious of our association, the strengths, the professionalism. We have a 30-course training regimen that supervisors go through and our staffs. So we have a lot of people that are very well trained and a lot of background in working with the state because we also have a a big role in legislation. So we've got all these connections. And it's just a matter of coordinating that and being flexible in your response. During COVID, you know, one of the big things that Florida had going for it was we have a strong vote by mail capability. And as became apparent in looking at other states, we start counting our vote by mail ballots well in advance of election day. So we're keeping up with the workload. And so when we had to divert a lot of the votes to the vote by mail effort, because usually it was about 25% of the vote. Now it ramped up to over well over 50%. We had the options in place to count that, and it was okay in statute to count those ballots as we got them in. So there wasn't any kind of a delay in getting the results out because of that. It wasn't really envisioned for that as, as the benefit, but having the experience and the communications lines and just the partnerships already in place allows you to be flexible and really even write those good statutes in advance. Now, I, I see some from some of your bio that before you were running elections, you actually worked in the elections world in a, in a, for, for vendors, vendors of voting machines. And you actually had to deal with some of these issues, I think it is in 2004, with another hurricane. Maybe some thought of from the vendor's perspective, again, maybe the machines aren't available or, or things need we, need, we need emergency capacity. What, what kind of perspective would you think of from your vendor days? Yeah, so I'd worked in elections for 14 years up through 2000 at the county level. Then I went and worked for a vendor for six and a half years. And 2004 with Hurricane Charlie hit the uh, southwest coast of uh, the state. A lot of small counties, some big counties got really decimated. And, you know, vendors want their counties, their customers to succeed. But having that communication was very difficult. So from a vendor's perspective, and speaking to the vendors, I know a lot of vendors out there, they now have teams in place where they have essentially the ability to have a quick response. And whether they have to pull from their inventory to to replace voting machines or borrow from other customers within the state or outside of the state to have similar systems, you know, those kind of things are frequently worked out in advance. So we don't know exactly where that might be deployed, but most of the vendors in this realm nowadays have that capability in mind because it's, it's not their first time actually having to deal with that problem. So 
There's a close working relationship with the vendors and the county uh, elections officials. As a county official, you really depend on your vendors to make sure that you have quality equipment, but it's really the support structure that that vendor maintains that allows them to be strong enough to support you during the time of emergency. So Mark, we've spoken often about, we call it the automatic independent audit, where you, a jurisdiction will use a second certified system to audit the initial ballot count and, and observe the ballots if necessary, to actually take a look at them. More and more counties in Florida and around the country seem to be using this audit. Tell the listeners a bit about the audit, why it has bipartisan support, and how effective it's been. And maybe just to step back a little bit for some of our listeners, sure. what, what exactly, I mean, I'll put it in my simple layman's terms, that, that you have your ballots are scanned by scanners typically, but you have a totally independent separate scanning system, which both scans them and creates ballot images. And, and I'll let you go from there. That's the kind of big picture of what it looks like from the voter perspective. Exactly. Yeah. So really every state has so in some fashion or another, a certified vote tabulation system or a tab system. That's what we call it. In Florida, you can choose either yes and or Dominion. It's your primary vote tabulation system vendor. They're certified at the state and national levels. Counties can choose whichever vendor they want, you know, because there's different pluses and minuses for each system, depending on what your county looks like. But in 2009, when I came back from working with Diebold and came back to the county, we started looking at vendor that had the concept to do essentially a full retabulation or of the initial ballot count with a completely separate and actually competing system. And over quite a few years, we process a lot of ballots through that. And what it does is, as you scan the ballots through one system, in general, to as much as possible, you take it immediately to the secondary tabulation system, which in this case is an audit system. It's being used in an audit fashion, and you scan them right there too, right through the same, through a second system. It's a separate vendor, separate software, but they're both scanning the same ballot. So the, the ballot of record, the hard piece of paper with voters' marks as erratic as they often are. People can never figure out how to fill in an oval. There's checks and notes and everything. But you're scanning the exact same ballots almost immediately, temporarily, right after the first tabulation, which is your official vote count, with this second system. So you've got great chain of custody from the initial tabulation to the audit scanning. You're doing it under lock and key within the roof. It's open for public observation. And this second system is built a little bit different. Its goal is to process ballots quickly, but also capture these images and look at the quality of the marks on the open. And that's where really it comes down into play, the transparency and the ability to find errors and compare any variances in the vote count between the two systems, because frankly, they're almost never exactly alike. And everybody asks me, which one is right? The reason you get errors or variances, discrepancies in the vote count, I call them variances, is because if an oval is marked perfectly, the systems get identical counts because these electronic tabulators are very, very accurate. But humans don't make nicely filled in ovals. And so when you get these poorly marked ovals or marginally marked ovals, the audit system sorts all of that. You can go to any race and any candidate, and it will sort the ovals from the best marked to, more importantly, the poorest marked or least confident votes cast. And it could be over votes or under votes or who knows what, because sometimes people make a little mark or mark two and then circle and say, I meant to vote for this person and not this person. But all of that can be highlighted in the screen and you see all of these ovals. It's immediately apparent where the questionable ballots are. In Florida, we've got a long, long history of 
recounts. I was there in the 2000 recounts, Bush v. Gore. It was a very rough time because our statutes weren't quite equipped to handle that. It's become much better there, and really I think that was an instigator to the professionalism we see now. But we saw that recounts, when elections are most fragile, is during a recount. And frequently it's the most important races on the ballot, president in 2000, governor in 2018, and state senators. When elections are most fragile, that's not when you want to start touching all the paper again because you have a very short time to get recounts done because you got to certify the results of the election. And so you have a very small window to get all this work done. Traditional recounts, once you realize it's close, then you start having to get all of these teams of people and they start trying to count ballots by hand. And there's so much room for foul play, nefarious actions by somebody with these folks that are in, in big counties, especially are coming in counting all day and all night, like we saw in Arizona, or like we see in some of the bigger counties, even in Florida, when they aren't doing these a automated independent audits. And there's just too many people touching your ballots and too much room for air or, or malicious activity. Whereas here, we're doing our the scanning in line with the election throughout the course of the election. It's just another thing we do every single day. And so, and it's open for public review. So it's very methodical. It's built into the system. And at the end of the election, when you push the button on the primary tabulator to get the results, you can push the button on the audit system and get the audit results exactly at the same time. And instantaneously, you can really look and compare this set of votes. Now, we've had a statute in Florida that allows us even to use that as the recount process also. It's still some of the certification issues are being worked out, but I think it's soon going to come to pass that we can use this second system to perform the official recount for the first tabulation system because the transparency is there. You can hover over these poorly marked ovals. It shows an image of that race. You click on it, up pops the entire ballot. You can see how all the ovals are marked. It's got a, uh, an ID number that matches a ballot in a box. It's got a box name and the number of ballots down. That's the image name. So you can immediately go find the piece of paper if that's required and match it right back to the piece of paper. And we've avoided recounts in my county, even under the phases where we were still in, say, 2012. We had a ballot with 300,000 pieces of paper. It's two pages per voter. We had 150,000 voters. One race way down ballot was separated by 192 votes out of 150,000 ballots cast. There was 101 votes in that race, so 49,000 ballots did not even have that contest marked. We would have had to find all of those out of the 300,000 sheets of paper, review every one of those 49,000 by hand, which was just an impossible task. But with this system, within literally 30 minutes, we could prove to everybody just by jumping around through the marginal marks and showing all these blank ballots that there was no reason to contest the election. Nothing changed by more than, I think it was plus two for one candidate, plus three votes for the other candidate. The margin of difference was not going to change. And they were both happy and we avoided the recount, which would have been extremely expensive for the taxpayers and extremely time consuming for us. And we had another election to run in, uh, in 11 weeks. So this was a great benefit. So you can say that you're going to count the ballots with your original tabulation system, and then you're going to do a second count. You can call it a recount or whatever it is. And that happens, happens very quickly. Uh, I know there were some people who jokingly said across the country where some states were taking a long time to count ballots that before we even got our first count, Florida already counted the ballots twice. That's partly what they meant by that. A lot of the counties that were able to do this and with a totally independent system. So if people worried, well, maybe there's a problem with this machine, well, there's a check right away. And then I guess just to 
pile on or piggyback to what you were saying about the the third aspect of it is that you can actually see the ballots in in the images where theoretically a candidate could look and say, well, are there any ballots worth challenging? Am I close enough to challenge? Or they could quickly find the ones that they want to focus on. So you see this as the future in, in Florida, I assume. You've got a lot of counties doing this. Is it you're, you're expecting it to go further? Absolutely, yeah. For a long time, we were the lone county. Then there's six and seven and eight. But after the 2018 recounts, and it was four statewide recounts, it really opened everybody's eyes. And that extra part that in 2018 didn't seem to be that big a thing, but now when everybody's doubting the veracity of elections, the transparency built in by being able to see every one of these images instantaneously and go grab the, find the piece of paper in that box, vote by mailbox 17, it's the 118th ballot down in the stock, go pull it and it matches what you've got on the screen there so people believe the you know what the representation on the screen is. It's quick, engenders a lot of trust in a process that is unfortunately, you know, had a lot of people's naysaying about it. I think this builds a lot of trust back into the system because it's so transparent and so quick and efficient. Would you agree that it increases confidence in elections? I've heard a couple of supervisors tell me that, look, when you go through this process, it shows you how accurate the voting machines actually are. You're going through millions and millions and millions of ballots and ovals and it just shows you how accurate it is when you when you use a system like this. Absolutely. It builds great confidence. It restores the confidence. And when you see two systems that are so close and everybody's first glance, they say, but they're, they differ. But you can go right to those images and say, here's these ballots. You look at them and not only can the computer not necessarily know the, the actual vote here, humans have a hard time distinguishing this. You know, when it gets to that kind of uh, criticality, it goes to the courts. But they're exceptionally accurate, very, very good agreement. And it also audits so many different things. It's not just auditing the results. It's making sure your people aren't losing ballots or misplacing ballots along the way. So you're auditing your ballot inventory, your chain of custody, making sure voters aren't voting twice because we get reports from every early voting site. Okay, 100 people checked in. We've got 99 ballots tabulated. Where's that other ballot? Okay, we go look. We found it. Okay, it was sitting on the floor underneath when they close up the polling places. That doesn't sound good, but these are, you know, humans working the system and, you know, they make mistakes. And so you go find that and then you make sure that they don't drop a ballot, you know, at the end of the day when they're all exhausted and trying to hurry up and get these ballots in. So there's many, many ways that this provides checks and balances and, and enhances our ability to be accurate. So it's almost like audit as you go. It absolutely is. And it audits many different aspects of the election as you go. So we're talking about transparency. My next question is also about transparency. You know, in the past, there was always some observation of the voting process and canvassing of ballots. Then 2000 occurred, right? So it then became more than just the lawyers. So a lot of people want to see and understand what is going on to build that trust that they, they need. What are you and some of the supervisors doing to maintain that transparency? Talk about what happens in a polling place, what happens in during this tabulation process, during that chain of custody and security. Ever since 2000, our statutes have really been evolving, and there's a lot more emphasis on security, chain of custody, cybersecurity ever since, say, 2016, 2017, but also transparency and giving the public opportunities to observe the process. In my office, we've built a whole wall of windows so that our canvassing operations and our audit scanning operations and all of that are ballot duplication when we get vote by mail ballots that are, you know, shredded in the mail or have some got wet and so some ink is running or whatever. You have to recreate these ballots that can all be observed. So what we try and do 
is, well, first we get out in the communities and try and explain these things. I give these kind of talks a lot among, in, within the community, but also getting the community to come into our offices. It's their space. And we want them to come in and observe the process, see the amount of thought that is put to any kind of a rejection, say, of, say, a vote-by-mail ballot because of a signature problem. I mean, we've debated 15 minutes of one person's signature whether to count that ballot or not. Everything we do is, I think, for the most part, very well thought out, and we try and let the public come and observe so that they can keep that level of trust and understand what the processes are because we don't want this to be that black box thing out there. Another thing I hear a lot is we get a lot of people coming up with, well, you know, if you did this, you could easily hack the system. Or One of the things lately, we have to have police officers escorting ballots everywhere. We don't have enough police officers to do that or sheriff's deputies. That's a state law that's uh, being proposed in Florida. But, you know, we thought this out 30 years ago. It's a very professionalized administration of elections that's in place. And so we've got a lot of checks and balances that the public has no idea that we do that I think if they got in and actually took a look, and frequently it's the lawyers from the different parties or candidates in close elections that come in, but they always go away thinking, wow, I had no idea you all did that. So the more the public can come out and actually see what we do, I think that's going to be the key to building that trust back. And part of the observation or transparency, some of it is the public generally and windows and maybe cameras and and learning about this, but some of it is our system has been built on the parties having watchers and watching each other in a sense, Democrats making sure that Republicans aren't doing anything and vice versa. And so there are in polling places observers, and you're also indicating that at various parts of the process through the the counting and recounting of ballots and an absentee ballot process, there are observers from both parties. So one, I guess, just tell us a little bit about the, the importance of that or how that works out. And secondly, there's been some controversy about how far observers should go. And some, maybe some people being overly zealous, it's an important feature and it should be there. And yet you want to make sure you have the right set of balances. So, so what would you say about that part of the transparency process? Yes. So in Florida statute, there's a whole set of provisions for poll watchers. And these are folks that are designated either by parties or candidates that are on the ballot. They can go to the polling places and actually stand there and watch the whole process. And if they see something they're concerned about, they can talk to the clerk, not the voters. They can talk to the person that's running the polling place and make an objection. They could even object to a a voter's eligibility or not. But parties and candidates frequently have poll watchers in place at polling sites, early voting sites, at the canvassing board meetings when we're uh, tabulating the vote by mail ballots. Certainly, if there's a recount scenario or during the audits, they have these people there that are really witnessing all of this. And it works very smoothly. And vast majority of the time, it goes very smoothly. And the poll watchers come up to me and say, wow, this, you know, that's an amazing job. We had no idea the things that go on behind the scenes to make sure that you're not making mistakes, not losing ballots, chain of custodies. You're getting signatures upon signatures and checking all these seal numbers. It's just the amount of checks and balances we have in place, the better that can get publicized. So we welcome the poll watchers to come in. Now, we can't have poll watchers be disruptive because we're there to serve the voters. And if someone's getting disruptive, then we would ask them to leave without any hesitation because the polling place has to be a place where voters feel secure, where they feel no intimidation and where they can come in, have in their mind who they want to vote for, review the ballot, make their marks and vote and feel very good about it. You know, it's it's really it's their celebration of democracy to go in there and cast their ballot. And we don't want that to be spoiled by somebody who's got some kind of an ulterior motive. 
So amazingly, time has really been flying by. So we're getting toward the end of the podcast. <laughs> I talk where, a lot. Where we ask, a, where we ask a couple of questions. We ask everybody these, and, and I'm gonna, I'll start, and I'll let Don ask the final question. But we want to know about how you got into elections, <laughs> and then also what you would tell your pre-election self. What what did Mark Early before he got into elections? What didn't he know? What what, what should he have known that you now know? Yeah, like almost everybody I've ever met in elections, and I've met a lot of people over my many years here. Nobody really plans on getting into elections. I'd had a scholarship to a really nice school up north and maybe didn't take my studies seriously enough, lost the scholarship. And so I was sleeping on my mom's couch. She said, get up, go get a job. And so I ended up going to Manpower. And the first place they sent me was the elections warehouse with old lever style voting machines and got to work in there. And even in, with that old technology, found that it was interesting. It felt like a patriotic endeavor. I mean, it's not like you're part of the service and going out and risking your life, but you're really doing something for the country. And you can be creative, you can be innovative. What you do matters. So the surprising thing was that you could be creative. It wasn't just this bureaucratic slog. There's a lot, you know, with the weather situation, there's, everything's always changing. And there's a lot of opportunities to really make a difference. And so that was the surprising thing. And that was, is also, I think, the thing I would, if I knew it now, because when I first went in there, I thought I'd be there for two weeks and then go find a real job somewhere. <laughs> but it's been a very rewarding career. I still find myself feeling like I'm making a difference, really, frankly, today more than ever. And, you know, we need good people out there to join the ranks. There's a lot of people leaving. There's a lot of concerns, you know, fear because of the politics of the day. But really... It's a very rewarding career. There's a lot of collegiality between elections officials from state to state and certainly within states. So you feel like you're part of a team and it's, it feels good to work here. So the second question we ask folks is, so you've had a 30, 30 year plus career. 37. Um, 37 <laughs> yes. years. Tell us about the most funny or a funny or unusual <laughs> incident that has occurred in your career. We've all had them, but we like, uh, we like our guests to share this with the, uh, the public. Yeah, there's been a lot. I, in that amount of time, I, there were some, some instances out in California where I was supporting elections out there when I was with the vendor where people would plug the voting machines all in a big circle and there was no power. It's just silly stuff. But very recently, we had, it was right during COVID, and I got a call, which was unexpected. You know, we've had crimes happen near polling places and you have to shut them down. Those aren't funny, but, you know, they're unexpected. Well, here we had someone who showed up the polling place and just started disrobing right at the front door. So our naked voter. And it was funny. And our clerk handled it beautifully. This was a lady not to be trifled with. So <laughs> she ran that gentleman off very quickly, his tail between his legs. But uh, there was a big manhunt and we locked down the polling place briefly. But having the national new news crews calling me up and asking me about our naked voter because it somehow got on the uh, the news feed somewhere. That was a unique little situation there. Was it streaking with a mask? That's my question. <laughs> I'm not sure. There was. I think he had a ballot placed, you know, appropriately occasionally. So, yeah. Yeah, talk about election transparency. I mean, that's how <laughs> there you go. So. yes. Well, yes. Mark Early, thank you for joining us in the voting booth. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.